And our guest this evening is obviously Mark Bordeaux, who appeared on a Biota interview a couple of years ago. And Mark has a, a number of fascinating uh, projects and involvement. So I think we should probably start, Mark, with your book that has just been released, Protocells, Bridging Non-Living and Living Matter, with the view that you're really speaking to the choir in terms of artificial life, enthusiasts, academics, philosophers, muses, would you like to give an introduction to the book? I'd be delighted to. <clears throat> we think of the book, so this book was done in collaboration with uh, a large group of people. Um, uh, one of the, the most important person was Steen Rasmussen, and there were a handful of others, um, and it, it took about four years to, to pull together. It grew out of the conviction on our part um, that wet artificial life was um, coming to the fore and it was time to have wet artificial life. So we're now, I'm now thinking back in about the year 2000 um, at the uh, 7th Artificial Life Conference in Portland, Oregon, and I was talking with Steen and some other people at that point, and that point, at that point, at the, after that conference, we thought that the simulations and sort of the soft artificial life side of things, which I had been heavily involved in uh, up to that point, were now mature enough that we could try to make some of these things uh, uh, real in the laboratory. And so we decided to uh, work on finding a way to um, push the wet artificial life agenda. And this involved various things involving going to Italy for four years and starting the company Protolife, which maybe we'll talk about a little bit later on too. But also putting together, uh, we wanted to put together a resource on wet artificial life. So what I mean by wet artificial life is attempts to make living systems in the laboratory from scratch. So this is different from synthetic biology or Craig Venter's effort to make an artificial cell where you start with an existing living cell like a bacterium and then modify it by maybe putting in a synthetic genome or something. We're talking about starting from scratch and building things that deserve to be alive, even to call the life, even though they might be uh, different in important ways from any you know, uh, familiar form of life that naturally exists. <clears throat> anyway, so the book is uh, an anthology which covers all of the main approaches to trying to make experimental approaches, uh, theoretical approaches, and computational simulations trying to uh, work on making new forms of life in the laboratory from scratch. Um, so there are chapters from all of the main uh, research groups and chapters about all of the main avenues, uh, strategies being pursued. There, there's a, a, a set of chapters on the main components in the artificial cell, such as the membranes and the genetics and the uh, metabolism. And then there's also another section of chapters on the bigger picture, like a little bit about, not very much, but a little bit about the commercial applications, a little bit about um, connections with um, origin of life, a little bit about the social and ethical implications. So we think of it as the Bible of wet artificial life. And um, it's, uh, it's, it, it, it's supposed to, it attempts to be a pretty comprehensive survey, um, and there's a lot of uh, technical detail, and also a significant amount of uh, higher level uh, vision. Since it's written, different chapters written by different people, and all, uh, you know, many, all of the key, virtually all of the key figures in the field have some say in the book, 
Um, so you really get an overview of the diversity of, of work and approaches. And we're, we're really excited about it. We're looking forward to starting to have a chance to teach courses based on the book, um, et cetera. Terrific. And certainly the number one question that we receive with regards to wet artificial life is from soft or hard artificial life developers that just want to know more about what the particular vision of wet artificial life is and also how hard or soft artificial life developers can move their developments into wet artificial life. Could you talk to those two particular points, please? Yeah. Um, the, so one of the, the key ways that bringing wet artificial life in can help, I think, is that these systems are um, they're concrete physical systems, and they have an a you know an existence in in um, physical reality which is uh, completely unlike a computer simulation, for example, or even a computer system, a soft you know IT system that's just that's uh, on a given computer or on a on a IT network of some kind. So, so it's much more familiar kind of life. Um, it's wet, artificial life. And so that itself is a kind of reality check or a kind of, um, uh, if you can make life that is wet, artificial life, it enables you to, you're making a kind of life which is much more uh, close because it is wet to natural forms of life. And so you have a chance to, to uh, it kind of helpfully triangulates what life is because um, it's, it's closer to natural forms of life. Second issue is that the fact that these systems are embodied chemically and physically is, uh, makes a difference. The, the, one of the things we're investigating is the way in which the very embodiment process itself can solve certain problems, um, can do... Uh, computational work, for example, for you, so you get certain kinds of computational effects for free because of the way they're built. And in general, the, the idea of making a, a machine or something machine-like in wet chemistry is an interesting intellectual task because the, the nature of the machine, because it's wet and because everything is mixed together, is intrinsically different. So it's intellectually very um, exciting and rich. Um, a third point is that, in fact, chem uh, simulations, for example, traditional computer simulations, although maybe ones that are more realistic than many of the, the early artificial life simulations, but anyway, computer simulations play an important role in developing this, uh, you know, in making the wet artificial life story uh, work. A lot of wet artificial life, what I would call wet artificial life, actually grew out of work done by that's uh, being done by uh, chemists and biochemists, um, people who are a lot of more interested in the origin of life, and they're doing experimental work that's uh, you know, trying to make new kinds of life in the laboratory out of a, a prior interest in the origin of life. And what um, uh, the soft artificial life, I think, can bring is that that earlier uh, group of people who are working in wet artificial life out of origin of life, for example, or astrobiology, they um, tend to work in a very experimentally driven way. They, they, they roll up their sleeves and start mixing chemicals and look under the microscope and see what's there. And that's all fine, but what's missing is a, often is a more um, 
a theoretical picture or a theoretical vision of what life is and how to put it together. And that's the kind of vision that is often embodied in these computer simulations. And so having computer simulations play a, an active role in the uh, um, kind of a, the interplay, have, have computer simulations be in actively uh, interplaying with experimental work. So there's a kind of feedback. You do a simulation, and then that suggests some new kinds of experiments to do, and you do those experiments, and then those suggest how you should change your simulation or make some new simulation, and going back and forth. If you can start to have that happening, which you, well, first of all, you can start that, that kind of thing does now is starting to happen. There's a interaction between simulation work and experimental work in the wet artificial life field. Not so much in the traditional wet, in the traditional uh, attempts to make life in the laboratory, which grow out of origin of life or astrobiology, but certainly more so from this, uh, the, the people that are coming to it from artificial life because of their history of doing these simulations. And so this, this, this connection between simulations and experiments gives you a kind of, um, you can kind of leverage uh, and make progress in the same way in which, say, you know, traditional natural sciences like physics have made progress by the interplay between experiment and theory. In this case, the simulations are like theory. The, the theories are complicated enough that you can't, uh, you know, uh, work them out mathematically. You have to work them out with a computer. But they still, but forming the theories and using the theories to inform and suggest experiments, and then using those experiments to revise and modify your theories was very, very powerful in natural science. Um, and it's now starting to happen in wet artificial life. And the simulation crowd plays a key role in this. With regard to the hard artificial life people, there are a couple ways in which they are um, playing a role. One is that hard, there's a group of people uh, in hard artificial life who are focusing, are very interested in this whole embodiment question that I rose a minute ago. They're, they've been uh, something that people like Rolf Pfeiffer in Switzerland who are um, uh, kind of growing out of the, the work that uh, Rod Brooks did many years ago, trying to show how you can, um, you know, the right kinds of materials and the right kinds of uh, physiology can perform, so to speak, computational work for free in hard artificial life. And so now we're trying to do the same kind of thing I was saying in wet artificial life, even though some of the principles are different because the machines are wet, the machines are fluid, the parts are not fixed spatially as they are in a hard uh, uh, device. And, um, um, but anyway, but, but wet artificial life can learn a lot from that whole embodiment, embodied robotics uh, movement. And then um, in addition to that, these robots, people are working on making them smaller and smaller and smaller and having their, uh, they're interested in behavior of, a lot of interest now in behavior, in hard artificial life, in behavior of uh, swarms of robots, as you no doubt know. And some of these swarms are macroscopic, but others are, are getting more and more microscopic. And so I think because of this, hard artificial life and wet artificial life are going to start to merge. And you already see other versions of this merger starting because people are, you know, making robots that have chips with, uh, you know, some kind of bacteria or some kind of living, you know, wet form of life um, interacting in the chip. Um, 
So hard and wet are already, fusions of hard and wet are already happening um, uh, at the macroscopic scale too. So those are, those are some of the way. I guess the, the, the bottom line of all this is that I, I think that, I think of soft and wet and hard artificial life as being in principle fundamentally different uh, because the synthetic methods they're using are different. You know, one is soft artificial life is making lifelike systems in computer simulations or computer systems. Hard artificial life is making lifelike systems out of silicon and steel and plastic. And then wet artificial life is making them out of the sort of things you find in a supply cabinet in a, in a chemistry department, you know, amplifiers and um, nucleic acids and things like that. Um, but, but I think the boundaries are starting to blur, and I think that I'm sure they will just blur more and more as time goes on. So that the, the, the bigger picture that I have is, is captured in this concept of living technology. And this, that means technology or man-made systems that have the fundamental properties and enjoy the powers, the great powers of the living systems. Um, this would include, well, include any form of artificial life as well as um, other kinds of, you know, collective intelligence and um, adaptive, adaptive processes. And I, I think that these are, um, as I said, I think progress in every one of these things is sort of marginally at the boundaries helping the others. So in general, I think everyone will, um, everyone will, all of these sides will flourish. I do foresee in the next 10 years that the wet artificial life wing which historically, the last time we talked, um, you know, that I talked on, uh, on one of these, uh, a broadcast like this, I'm sure I was emphasizing the fact that it was true that wet artificial life is, is um, a smaller, a much smaller group just compared by their numbers to the other at conferences. And this was still true at A-Life 11, the last conference, uh, six months ago. But it was interesting that the, and, and I thought telling that the, the work that was voted by the delegates at ALS 11 to be the most interesting work presented was one of the handful of works in wet artificial life. So I think the whole community is getting more and more interested in this and realizing that um, it's time now to actively try to build these bridges that I was alluding to earlier. Certainly, certainly. Bruce, I know you've read Proto-Cells. Do you have any questions for Mark with regards to the book? Gosh, it's um, it's just a magnificent book, and I'm only part way through some of the chapters. And I just want to thank you, Mark, for bringing this to us. It's in my own PhD uh, work. It's it was couldn't have been better timed. Thank you, Bruce. So, Mark, last time you were on, you you talked a little bit about Protolife, your company. It was more than two years ago that we last had you on a Biota podcast. What developments has Protolife made over these over this time? I forget exactly where we were. Let me just tell you where we are now, and, and you can probably help me make the right kind of contrast from before if that's useful. Um, we were created because we raised a lot of money in Europe to do a project on creating the foundations of uh, sort of fundamental technology that will be used to make wet artificial life. Our, pro our goal wasn't to make wet artificial life. But it was to make the technology that would enable people to make wet artificial life. Photolife's part of that. Photolife is a company, a small startup company, and its part of it was to develop technology for <clears throat> um, a new kind of evolutionary algorithm that would enable you to use 
high throughput experimentation in the laboratory to very efficiently uh, discover and optimize complicated chemical systems. By complicated chemical systems, I mean systems that have a lot of different uh, parameters that you can independently vary and ones in which the parameters interact synergistically so you can't um, separately tune the parameters. You have to try to tune the whole system at once. In other words, the system has emergent, has, is full of emergent properties. Um, protocells would be one good example of this. This kind of synergy and complexity is a hallmark of living systems. Um, wet living systems, soft living systems, hard living systems. And uh, so we created this in order to help people make uh, protocells, but also this technology, you know, protocells the company, we have to be, uh, you have a bottom line, we have to be successful today. And before there are artificial cells, we, um, you know, this technology still can be useful in any place where people are trying to make, trying to either discover or optimize complicated chemical systems. And so we've been um, chopping this technology. So the technology works. We've proved it in a number of cases. We've, we've used this technology in our own laboratory. We had a laboratory in, in, uh, in Italy, in Venice, Italy. And we used this technology to do various uh, artificial cell type projects, but also to do more practical projects, such as um, discover a whole dozens of new um, uh, liposomal formulations of drugs uh, we discovered a um, uh, bunch of new uh, uh, um, supermixes, biotechnology supermixes uh, that you can use to uh, express proteins, um, cell-free protein expression kits. Um, so we discovered a bunch of uh, you know uh, new, much more efficient, cheaper ways of um, um, building, uh, creating cell-free ex protein expression kits. Um, we also use this to discover new, uh, very efficiently discover new complicated um, synergistic beneficial interactions among existing drugs. So you can take combination therapies that uh, sometimes have, uh, well, it turns out certain combination drugs, um, like generic drugs, for example, when you put them together, they have unpredictable consequences, and cases of unpredictable consequences can be very beneficial. We showed that that's a, that's a very hard problem to solve. And the general way in which people are solving the problem of discovering and optimizing complicated chemical systems, these emergent chemical systems, is with brute force search. And that's obviously really expensive. So our, our advantage is that we can make these searches so efficient that um, it becomes possible to uh, do projects that were just you know, impossible before. So at this stage in ProtoLife, what we're doing is simply writing up these results, we're actually having a hard time selling this, getting paying customers because we're, we feel like we're just ahead of the wave. You know, I was talking with, I talked with people in pharma or in biotech or uh, uh, those are the main fields we've been looking at so far, Some, somewhat to some extent in the materials industry, you know, the, the industry that makes new materials. All of the, in all of these cases, they're dealing with chemical systems that are complicated, highly synergistic, but they just are, not used to imagining that the kind of problem we can solve can be solved, and so they're not uh, they're not really receptive, or they haven't been receptive at this point. So we just we feel like we're ahead of the wave, and we're now just the company is waiting for the wave to catch up. So we're in the process of writing up these results I was telling you about, um, and publishing them, and um, maybe in a couple of years 
you know, the business will actually take off. But right now, business is not is not good for the for, for our company because um, uh, I think people are just at this point, in my interpretation, people are used to doing things the old-fashioned way, and um, you know, they just haven't learned that they really can do something different that was would have been impossible before. So we'll see. I, I'm I'm quite confident that someone's going to be doing this kind of thing in the next five years or so or ten years. The kind of thing that we developed is, um, you know, if if we're if we don't end up entering the market, someone's going to do it, and um, and so maybe maybe ProtoLife will have a role to play in all this, but it's going I think it's going to take a little while, a few years for just to kind of catch on. And in terms of pharmaceuticals, uh, we've had it suffered on previously. He's at Lilly, and I know another fellow in Southern California, although he didn't uh, venture which company he works for. And in terms of the search and the matching of proteins, my sense is that companies like Lilly already have internal uh, teams that are that are doing aspects of what you've described. So I think... Um, with regards to the receipt of, of large-scale pharmaceuticals, they've learnt at least some of the improved search uh, components that artificial life offers. Are, are you tracking folk that are working in these kind of uh, pharmaceutical companies that are doing similar sorts of things? Yeah, we, we are. And uh, another place that uh, there are these internal teams is in um, big, big chemical companies like Mobile. They have Mobile. Exxon Mobile has a team that does this just in-house. Uh, Dow Chemical Corporation has a team that does this kind of thing in-house. And I'm not, uh, I, I know pharma has, they have massive screening facilities, of course. In pharma, the in traditional pharma screening, um, and also traditional, in, this includes biotechs like Amgen, um, the, the kind of screening they do doesn't actually work so well with our method because it's, what they do is make huge libraries of compounds and then they can actually screen those libraries. These libraries have millions of compounds, literally a few million, uh, like maybe four. And um, they can screen the whole library in a matter of a few weeks. And so if they can screen the whole library in a few weeks, there's no real advantage for them to work with us. Because what we can do, the whole point of our protolyze technology is that when you have a huge search space, and you don't want to exhaustively search the whole space because that will take much too long, what you can do is work with us and we will sample the space in a very intelligent way so you can find the hotspot really quickly by only looking at some fraction of, you know, less than 1% of the whole search space. But if it's not expensive to search the whole space um, because you can do it all in two weeks, then who cares? You know, why would you want to work with us? So, and, and pharma can do this because they have these pre-existing libraries of small molecules um, and uh, or sometimes even libraries of large molecules. What what works where we work better is if you have a larger experimental space and you don't have a library built up in advance. But what you do is synthesize on demand. You know you sample the space and you you would it's as if you were synthesizing the compounds only because you decided to check that particular possibility. And this makes sense if you're dealing with a huge space of chemical possibilities, and it's simply not um, economically feasible to make all the compounds in this abstract space that you've defined, and what you want to do is by, by creating as many of, by making as few of those substances as possible, for you, the goal is to find, you know, the best substances, best relative to whatever 
you know, asset you're using, whatever test, whatever goal you have in mind. Um, so that's to say, the point I'm making here is that the way most screening is done in pharma right now, it's, it's a brute force approach, and uh, we're not so, uh, you know, they don't, they don't really need us. There's a lot of modeling, of course, that goes on in pharma, um, and this is maybe now a little bit more closely related to what, what we're doing. But in, in our approach, there's a, there's a heavy modeling component, but it's not the kind of model that traditional pharma makes. In traditional uh, pharma models of um, small molecules, for example, that these are what are called uh, structure activity models or sometimes QSTAR models. The way, you, the way those work is you have a, a primitive model of a, of a chemical entity, a molecule, and then you can add, add bits and pieces to the molecule or take bits and pieces away, and then you want to, um, uh, the model predicts some global property that you're interested in, you know, solubility or pharmacological activity or something like that. Um, so that, when you can do that, great. But in many cases, when you're dealing with complicated chemical systems, uh, including the kinds that, that pharma deals with, we simply don't understand the chemical first principles that are relevant well enough to build those expert models, to build those structure activity models. And so, um, and so when I was talking with uh, the guy who's in charge of uh, research at Amgen uh, six months ago, he was saying that, you know, when they think of the vast number of possible compounds they could synthesize and they haven't synthesized, and never will get around to synthesizing. It's just, um, you know, mind-boggling. They don't even know where to begin. Look, so what happens is people have a certain hunch. Some smart chemist has a hunch that a certain kind of molecule will be useful, and so they go and make some of that, and they make variants of that molecule. And so a little region in chemical space gets uh, gets filled out, and then they can screen in that region. But as you can maybe get a sense, it's it's very ad hoc. It's it's uh, it's a black art. Um, and a lot of it depends on the intuitions of the chemists involved, and sometimes those can be lucky. But if you want to get beyond intuition and try to have it be based more on, uh, uh, you know, have the exploration of these huge spaces be based on um, empirical results, you know, sort of sound science, then that's, that's where our technology can, can be helpful.